athletes. Thank you, Mark. Get set. It's time for the Addict to Athlete podcast. Everybody out there, Coach Blue Robinson here. I want to thank each of you for downloading, sharing, and subscribing to the podcast. You jump on and give us a review. You can help us get into the ears of those who really need the help, the support, and the outlet to help recovery become part of a lifestyle and become part of your your own journey through uh, life. Thank you so much for downloading and sharing. Athletes, jump on the website, addicttoathlete.org. You'll find lots of resources and all kinds of content for you to, to review and to, to add and, and to contribute to. It does help you get more information on what we do here on Team Addict to Athlete. I want to take a moment to thank our Patreon subscribers. It is because of you that Team Addict to Athlete's podcast is now increasing. The ability we have with your help to increase the content, to get it out to those who, who truly need it, um, I can't I can't express how thankful and how much gratitude we have for you guys being willing to be part of our Patreon family. I want to thank our super fans, Jerem Thurston, Holly Davies, Scott Foster, Coach Chris Williams, Brett Frew, Coach Tara Butson, the Warrior Within podcast and personal development by Sensei KP, and our newest Patreon subscriber, Steve Riggs. Our rookie level contributors, thank you so much, Kenny Roseman, Earl Dyer, and Joe Jackson. Our pro-level Patreon subscribers, Selena Armitage, Gary Thurston, Josh Hansen, and thank you so much, Rowena Catrone. Our championship-level subscribers, the highest tier possible, Shad and Freya Robison and the Robison family, Ron and Dee Loesch, and Tracy Whitby. Thank you all so, so much for being willing to participate in our Patreon program. If you'd like bonus episodes, exclusive deals, merchandise, and content, jump on patreon.com slash addicttoathlete and pick a tier that works best for you. Shoot, $2 a month can get you all of our bonus episodes. So jump on. That's how you can help support Team Addict to Athlete's effort moving forward. And thank you all so, so very much. So listeners, I'm excited today to have uh, to have a guest that was referred to me through Dr. Paul Jenkins, who you've all all heard from and know. And uh, as I dove into some of the content that, uh, that our, our guest speaker is going to bring along with him, I'm kind of impressed with the mindset because it's something that I think most people would look at and kind of kind of laugh. But today we have we have an author, we have an entrepreneur, a CEO, Michael Brody Waite. And he uh, is the author of the book, and I love this title, brother. Um, uh, Great leaders live like drug addicts. I love this so much, uh, Michael. Welcome to Addict Athletes Podcast. Before we get into some of that stuff, tell the listeners a little bit about you, and I really want to jump into not just the title of your book, but the content within and how really being labeled as a drug addict or having that history doesn't really make you, uh, I guess, uh, a bench warmer. You can still do life, right? Yeah. Well, at least that's what they tell me. Um, <laughs> that's what they but, tell you. <laughs> no, dude, I'm, I'm glad to be on here. So uh, for me, you know, I think one of the earliest memories I have and feeling different was I, I felt incredibly growing up, incredibly uncomfortable in my own skin. And I feel like when they handed out the instructions on how to deal with life, I was skipped. And I was sitting there my freshman year of college, just very uncomfortable um, very emotionally lost. And, uh, my dad's an alcoholic and my parents had had to sit down and said, you know, you've got the gene, so you got to watch it. And like, you don't do that if your kid uh, might be an addict because that just made me want to do it. And I watched a lifetime movie about an alcoholic. And when I was watching that movie, I was like, you know what? I bet I could do that really well. And so the first thing I ever really applied myself to was becoming an alcoholic and, and I was successful and I mm-hmm. got, you know, 
then I progressed into drugs and, and then, you know, I wanted alcohol and drugs all the time and smoking and you name it. And by the time I'm 23 years old, I've been kicked out of school. I've been fired from my job. I've been evicted from my home. My car has been repossessed. The only money I had was what I could steal from my friends. I'm throwing up blood. And I know that's kind of like depressing, but uh, this one will make you laugh. My doctor said the only thing higher than my liver enzymes was me. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So at the age of Jeez. 23, man, I was ready to check out a life, dude. Um, I, I really was. I, I, I didn't have the courage to take myself out, but I was lost and I, and I just wanted to die. Mm. Yeah. So what age, how old were you when really you, you decided, hey, I'm going to try this and you tried alcohol and you're like, hey, that's the ticket to a lot of like, of like, uh, you know, my, my problems worry. Like, how old were you when you first did that first drink? I was a pretty um, protected, insulated kid growing up. And so I didn't try alcohol until my junior year of high school. Okay. And then I, I, I got so wasted that, I mean, I actually was like, oh man, that, I don't want to do that again. Uh, but when I got to college, you know, the level of social anxiety that I had, I just didn't feel like I fit in and mm. everybody was drinking. And, and I remember, you know, it was the first time I really tried drinking beer and, and I was like, okay, you know what? Like this makes things easier. And then, mm -hmm. like I said, you know, I finally said, okay, you know what? I'm going to set my mind to becoming an alcoholic. And then by my junior year of college, I had like the credits of a freshman um, and I, I really got hardcore into drugs because I wanted to up the high. And so right. I just kept trying to up the high until, you know, I almost got myself out of here. It's interesting. I think a lot of people have that mindset where they're just like, you know, like, I'm an alcoholic, but you're like chasing that high. Like there's gotta be something bigger, better, faster, and stronger than this. Um, and you make that leap. So even though mom and dad kind of planted that seed of like, don't ever try alcohol because you have that in your genes. There's like, a, there's a variety of other substances that, that can get you, you know, there and further. And so it is kind of a catch 22, isn't it? It's like, well, if I can't use alcohol, cause that might be something that just me. there's a lot of other stuff. I think sometimes you're right. We do a little bit of damage when we like try to type past, you know, into one substance you chasing the addiction like we all did you know who listened to this podcast it's like no there's other things out there and so don't just think that because you have that in your history doesn't mean that you can't get connected or, or high on other stuff too and so i'm glad you pointed that out because i see that even now in the world today where people try to, try to substitute substances well i'm an opiate you know addict but uh you know what alcohol wasn't my thing so maybe i'll go drink and i'm like guys you gotta be careful with that mindset right Dude, uh, any mind altering substance is dangerous for me. So yeah, it doesn't, you know, at, at the end I did them all and I was doing them all every day and it didn't matter. And so I think if you get too locked into one particular type of substance is your problem. I, I've seen way too many people die yeah. thinking that they could do the other substances and, you know, and I'm not into judgment of other people's, uh, recovery and all that kind of stuff. But like for me personally, man, you know, I can do caffeine in moderation, but I can't do sugar. You know, yeah. I mean, I'm not going to I'm not going to go to jail over over that. I'm not I'm not at risk of getting a DUI over that. But it's that sugar can be a real struggle today. You know, with 18 years clean like that's luckily that is my struggle. But, um, you know, the disease of addiction is a cunning, baffling, powerful deal. And uh, I think everybody's got a little bit of a different journey. But I think at the end of the day, if you can take all that energy and funnel it into something positive like you like you teach, um, I think uh, people have a much better shot at being happy. 
Well, so when things started to get, get way out of control and you started realizing that, man, you're, you're a junior now and you're like, I'm not going to be able to make this. And things started to kind of start falling like, away from you. Um, what was it that instituted your, I guess, progression even to get into treatment or to, to seek help? I mean, was this a family intervention? Was this something that you kind of surrendered and raised your hand? Like, how did you get to that point where help was? It was definitely a progression. So there was a night where I, I was on my own and, um, you know, my, I was house sitting for my parents and uh, they were leaving for 30 days and they gave me three jobs. They said, we need you to take care of your childhood cat. We need you to clean the bird cages because they're that kind of freaky old people that have yeah. all these birds. No offense <laughs> to bird owners. And, uh, and they said, there's all this like old documents that we just need to recycle or shred or whatever. And they're like, that's, those are your three jobs. Here's money for food. Here's whatever, blah, blah. And so I didn't, I did, I left the house once, I think. And all I did from the, from the minute I woke up to the minute I passed out at night was get drunk and high. And, um, I even remember I would watch all of like the online, uh, not online, all the dating shows. So I can still tell you the lineup at 3 PM shipmates started at 4 PM blind date started. Then there was fifth wheel. Then the, you know, all these dating yeah. shows and I would yep. just get wasted. And by the time my parents, um, came back, uh, my cat was the only thing I'd taken care of. I had not taken care of the birds like practically at all. I hadn't cleaned their cages once when I went to clean their cage, like thousands of gnats went flying into the air and I'm like running around the house with a vacuum trying to suck them all down. And, um, and I didn't, you know, take care of the documents and I barely took care of the cat. And there was a night during that 30 day stretch where I actually looked myself in the mirror and I said, a, I don't recognize who this is. B he looks pretty lost and C I feel like I can't get high enough. And I remember one night I set my intent on, I was trying to kind of hard to OD on the stuff I was doing, but like I was trying to OD. I wanted to die high and I wanted to die higher than I'd ever been. And I remember I, I did more than I've ever done. Um, we had like an eight foot pong, like I did more than I'd ever done. Um, I don't know how much alcohol I drank that night. I don't know how much I put in my body. And I remember there was a moment where I finally said, oh man, I feel high enough. And then I swear five minutes later, I wanted more and I just started crying. And I was oh. like, dude, I can't, I can't even keep up with this. And yeah. I told a therapist and he recommended that I go to a 12 step fellowship and I was like, screw that. And, but then, you know, I ran out of options. I didn't have any money. Um, I didn't have a job. I, I didn't have anywhere to live. The only thing keeping me from the street was my buddy's uh, couch. And, you know, my dad would meet me for breakfast like once every month or so. And he just wanted to see that I was still alive and he kept right. offering treatment. And, um, I was always like, no, no, I'm fine. And then I came back to my buddy's, um, place that I was crashing at. And he was like, you really need to go to treatment. And that was really translation for you need to get the F off my couch. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I knew, yeah. and I knew, and so I was like, okay, do I want to live on the, in the street or do I want to have 28 days where I can have a, you know, roof over my head and food and figure out what my next move is. And so I took the rehab just as a way to uh, not get kicked out of his house. Yeah. Gotcha. And so you show up and, and were you just kind of like, ah, I'll be able to coast through this. No worries. I've done things for 28 days. I've done things longer than 28 days. Um, was it an eye opener? Did it take you a minute to get, to get going or oh, once you got there, what I mean, happened? Dude, it was surreal. Like I'm in rehab. Like you see that in the movies, right? But yeah. like I'm actually, and I went to the Betty Ford Center. This is a place that actually has been in movies or whatever. Yes. And I walk in, and um, and I honestly, I was just like, I could not imagine going 28 days without using. 
but it was such a surreal experience. And they, they hooked me up with this guy. I think his name was Nate and he was supposed to be my buddy. And he like shows me around and then I go to lunch and then I come back and I'm like, okay, where's Nate? I need to, you know, he needs to show me what to do. And someone's like, dude, you don't know. I'm like, what? Like Nate escaped. He's gone. Nate's <laughs> I'm like, gone. okay, dude, that was yeah. my first day. Um, but you know, for me, it what I spent the first three days telling everybody that I wasn't supposed to be there. Yeah. And Blast. at some point, yes, at some point, I kept hearing my story come out of other people's mouths. And one thing that really hit me in particular was one thing that happens when you're in rehab is like, at least for a lot of rehabs, I went to two different ones. Um, you know, there's like, you, you sit in order of who's like out the tenure. Mm -hmm. And as people get to the 28th day, you see people that were at the 28th day come back at the first day. They, oh. they graduate, they relapse, mm. they come back. And I kept hearing my story come out of other people's mouths. And then I read something about like, try to not use for a year. And I was like, I couldn't do that. And I yeah. finally was like, you know what? I think that this might be my only shot to reclaim my life. Hmm. Oh, that would be scary, man. I can't imagine you sitting there having like the goodbye group or whatever for, for, you know, patient, you know, patient a, and then a couple of days later, like seeing them come back and be like, Oh my gosh, like that, as you're getting closer to that, that benchmark, that had to be a little bit terrifying. Like what is going on? Why am, why are we just recycling this? It, it, that would be well, a very, you know what? Be a bad visual. You know what was more, you know, what was more terrifying was when What's they that? would have us all stand up and like, hold on to each other. And they said, look to the person on your left and look to the person on your right and know that there's like a 90% chance that neither of them will stay clean after 28 days and just know that there are people looking at you. Oh my so, gosh, dude, that's like I a know. <laughs> good night, everybody. See you in the morning. Like that's insane. That's, that's brutal. Yeah. How did you wrap your head that. around that? Cause I mean, as you started getting closer to that, that graduation chair, were you thinking, well, this is not going to work. Well, when they said it, it was scary, but it was, I, I didn't believe it. And so that's why the people coming back in the chair, they, they were living proof that that was real. That's true. Mm -hmm. And then that's what really scared the crap out of me. And that's what made me take the thing seriously is, mm -hmm. is really seeing my story and then realizing that, wow, people do die. I wanted to die. People do relapse. This isn't as mm -hmm. simple as you just do this and you're good. Cause I kind of thought like, you know, you just do this and then you're good. And they're like, no, it's a lifelong thing. And lifelong. I'm like, dude, okay, well, uh, I don't really want a lifelong thing. So I'm just going to go ahead and just try to get through these 28 days and go back to my old lifestyle. But when I saw that and I just, I mean, I, I was, I, my health scores were so low, like everything about me sucked, dude, yeah. everything about me sucked. And so there was a part of me that, that didn't fully believe that, that I could stay clean but I really wanted to change my life and I knew I was going to die if I didn't. So I mm. used it as an excuse to believe what they were saying, even though I didn't fully believe what they were saying. Yeah. You know, it makes sense. About what year was that? What was that period of time? But when, when was that? 2002. Perfect. 2002 coach blue over here. He's, he's, you know, coming out of this program. He just graduated, um, uh, you know, or be a licensed substance abuse counselor. Right. I, I dropped out of high school because of drugs and all that kind of stuff. When I got married, my wife's like, hey, one recommendation I'm going to give you is go back to school and get your GED. I went to adult high, got the diploma. But when I, you know, I'm like, hey, I'm, I'm done. Life is good. And he's like, no, there's, there's still more out there. I started working with people in chemical dependency because I knew it, right? 
Yeah. And so I took this program and I was, I was working in the field and the Mothers Against Drunk Driving came to do a speech at the school I was working at. And funny enough, the president of, of MAD was actually a guy. And I thought, that, that's interesting. He stands up and he says this, <laughs> the rule of thirds, he says, one third of everybody who ever has an addiction, they will die. The next third, everyone who uses the next third, they'll be in and out of jails, institutions, all that stuff, you know, treatment. They'll have periods of sobriety, but then they'll relapse and they'll always, this will be part of their, their life the rest of their life. And then he's like, and the third one, you'll, you'll do it. You'll get sobriety. You'll heal from all this stuff. You'll have a life worth living and you'll find that niche. And I remember thinking, dude, two thirds of that suck, you know, yeah. but it was that, it was that kind of mindset I had of like, I was going to take on the world. I was going to, I was going to heal the world, man. But when I heard that, I thought, nonsense. Until I started working in the field right then, and I started realizing, oh my gosh, he's speaking the truth. This is about right when people started dosing. We started seeing clients come back in, and I'm like, what is going on? So I can hear these statistics bouncing in my head, as you did. Um, but it's kind of interesting, because through this process um, of, of, of me understanding where my addiction came from, you know, what, you know, what my, my cans and can't do's I thought were that we were able to kind of push through. I mean, I was one of those guys who thought I could never graduate high school. I'm never going to go to career. And all of a sudden I'm master's degree. What? I still feel like I conned them out of all that stuff. Yeah. <laughs> you also caught a bug. You caught something um, that I think I want to drill down on and maybe even spend some time on. And that's at some point through that process, you know, first and second bout of treatment, you latched on to, to an idea that if, if I could, if I'm going to be an addict, I'm going to be the best addict I can be. Or if I'm going to be a producer or an entrepreneur or a CEO, I'm going to be the best one I can be. That mindset, when I heard Dr. Paul talk about you, I thought, I thought I was the only one that thought that way because it is so foreign to people. When you, when that light switch clicked on, what was it? Do you remember the aha moment where you took a step back and you're like, hey, wait a minute. You tell me I can use some of the superpowers I developed over the, over the, the addiction for something positive. When did you flip the script? How did that come to light? I think it was, you know, um, my first job out of, out of treatment was working at, uh, at a CD store and, and then, um, Holy cow, for our old listeners, what is that? Yeah, I know. Seriously. Like, like when I go do speaking engagements, I'm like, if you're older than me, it's a, it was a Sam Goody. I'm like, it's a record store. Ah. If you're my age is a CD store. And if you're less than 30, you have no idea what I'm talking about. Um, Awesome. (laughs) And I also was working at a Dell kiosk and, you know, like back when they were saying, dude, you're getting a Dell. And I, and here I am this kid in Nashville, Tennessee with like long hair, hoop earrings and flip flops. So like, I'm really playing the part and you know, I would, those were just jobs so I could keep my bed at the halfway house. Right. Mm -hmm. But at some point I got into the corporate section of Dell, um, back when they were like a fortune 20 company or whatever, and they were growing. And I remember distinctly um, this guy telling me, you know, we have a process for how you handle calls. You're going to do 150 calls a week, 600 calls a month, 7,200 calls a year. And we have a process for how you can be successful. You have to follow this process. And most people don't follow it, follow it. And then most people don't sell. And so I'm getting that during the day. And then at night, I'm going to meetings with my sponsor who's saying, we have a process that your life depends on. And most people don't follow it and they die or they relapse. But if you follow it, you can be really successful. So I'm following a process in my personal life to save my life. So when this guy says, we have a process, follow it, and you'll be successful. I'm already in that mindset. 
and I followed their process. And so like within, hmm. I don't know, 90 days of being on the, on the sales floor at Dell, I was like ranked number one out of 500 sales reps and I wasn't the smartest and I had no connections and I didn't have a college degree or anything like that. It was, I followed the process more effectively than other people. And then I got promoted from that job. Like I got promoted eight times in eight years. And one big thing that st stood out about me versus anyone else, that's a competitive advantage that anyone can claim that nobody does, was I was the most aggressive in sharing my weaknesses. And as a result, I got more mentorship than all of my peers. Hmm. And so while I wasn't the smartest, the most educated, the most connected, I was able to grow faster than everybody around me because they were too busy hiding themselves. But when you admit that you're a drug addict, when you tell the world you're a drug addict and you work a program of recovery, like it is not scary to say, I have no idea how to use Microsoft Excel. That's not scary to me. Like that does not threaten my life. And so I, w I did not even hesitate. I shared my weaknesses aggressively and I got promoted so fast that the people that used to be my mentors became my employees. That's insane because you are speaking something that I've tried to like articulate with these folks for so long. It's that concept of, of like, why are you trying to pretend to be something that you're not Just show me who you are? And I mean, what listeners, Michael just gave you a, a theorem right now for success in and of itself, which is be yourself. That is so hard. So many times I've been in therapy, people have been across from me and they just will not get authentic because for some reason they're afraid I'm going to judge them or the secret's going to come out, or they're going to know that they experience trauma or pain. And, and I'm you're like, there to help them. Like, exactly. The they heck? come into group and they lie their butts off. And I'm like, because they think if they tell me what they're going to hear, maybe they can get down a week early. And I'm like, guys, you can get down a week early when I, when you, when you be honest with me, I can feel it. They're so afraid yeah. of being authentic. I love that. Did those two, did those two things work? The, the, the job at, in the daytime and the personal revelations at night, did those two, those serums work together? Yeah, that, I mean, that was my whole life, you know, and, and at one point, um, I, I my addictive tendencies overtook it a little bit. And I was able to use that obsessive energy to work insane hours to get ahead. It paused because my, people right there, brother, I know this because they say that's about me. When I train these guys to start running, they're like, you're switching addictions. I'm like, not even close. Say that again, <laughs> listeners. I want you to pay attention to what Michael is saying. He used that same strategy for something positive. Would you mind repeating that, brother? Yeah, I use that obsessive energy and that addictive energy to put in the hours that were necessary for me to be successful at work. And it, mm. it did become a little bit of, a, of an addiction. And, and at some point, I needed to chill out a little bit. But I was able to funnel that. The problem is, at least and this is my experience, is when people, and this is just on my observation of friends and people that I've sponsored and all this kind of stuff, when people as an addict, I like black and white. I like binary. So I like it's either all this or all that. The problem was, the trick was, I had to take that obsessive energy and put in the work at my job while still being able to switch gears and make sure that I fed my recovery. And there was definitely a period of time where I was completely mailing in my recovery and I felt like I was at risk. At about one and a half years clean. And, um, and that's when, you know, I had a sponsor talk to me and he's like, look, man, you can put in all the time you want at work, use that energy at work. Like that's good, but you do have to put in some work on your recovery. And, um, and so for me, like I define what the right balance was, but I think even more importantly, frankly, the obsessive energy that gave me the work ethic, that's not that special, honestly, because there's a lot of people like it's special. 
but there's right. a lot of people that have great work ethics. Mm-hmm. If you're an addict out there, or if you've struggled with addiction, the fact that you had to own it means that you have the capacity to own your weaknesses aggressively, clearly, in a way that most people don't. There's a lot of people that aren't addicts that are willing to put in the work. Almost nobody's willing to aggressively own who they are. Why like do you almost think that? nobody. I'm curious. I, I love that. But why do you think? Because I see that manifest out here with what we're doing 10 years ago when these guys throw on a jersey that says addict to athlete. And I'm like, if you guys put that on, everyone will know. And they're like, we don't care. We're proud of it. You know, and anonymity was out the door with, with, with this team and yep. the program we started. Why is that such an important step to be that honest about yourself? To, to really kind of wear your struggles kind of not as a badge of honor, but as a, as a I guess, a medal of courage. So I remember when I had an interview for my first job, um, I, I was, you know, I was at the halfway house. I had five business days to get a job or they were going to kick me out. And I had a terrible work history, no college degree. And I'd like these huge gaps because I've been using it in rehab. And I got that one job interview at that Sam Goody, right? And, and I'm driving to the job interview and I'm terrified because I know they're going to ask me about my work history. And so I call my sponsor and I'm like, you know, what do I, what do I do here? You know, what do I tell him so I can get this job? And he's like, it's really simple. Just tell him the truth. And I'm like, no, they aren't going to give me the job. And if I don't get the job, I'm going to get kicked out of the halfway house. I get kicked out of the halfway house. I'm going to use, if I use, I'm going to die. So you got to give me something better than that. And he said, no, dude. And and I've translated this in my book and in my Ted talk, but he said, you got to practice rigorous authenticity. You got to surrender the outcome and you got to do uncomfortable work. Mm. And the thing that he said to me that I'll never forget is he said, what's true in God's world anywhere is true everywhere. And what he was really telling me was the only way I could stay clean was if I showed up without a mask, a philosophical Mm. mask, right? If I didn't hide myself at all. And so I went to that job interview and I told him I was an addict who'd been using and I just got out of rehab as a halfway house. I needed the job and he, and, and the guy gave me the job and he said, when can you start at the end? And, and so for me, the thing that my, my sponsor at the time was teaching me was the gap between who I truly am and who I show people is where my personal disease of addiction lives. Hmm. And so regardless of whether it's at work, in my personal life or whatever, I got to be real about who I am 100% of the time because the second I start lying to people in any way, lying is my real addiction. You know what I mean? And I can't use that at all or I'll go rip and run. And so I feel like the the most successful addicts that I know are the ones... you know, I'm not going to get into what people should do with their anonymity. Clearly, I am yeah. way out there. I, yeah. I tell everybody I'm an addict, wrote a book about it, right? But but I think for me, it is so freeing because I don't ever have to worry about the second story I need to tell people. And I got a lot of friends in recovery that keep their anonymity and, and I don't judge them for it, but I'm yeah. glad that I don't have to carry the weight of those two different narratives of who I am. It's a, it's a, it is a very free kind of i guess feeling to be able to to be, be like again another dated reference like popeye i am what i am i am who i am and that's all that i am and i love that concept and i understand why people start wearing those masks again it's interesting because what happens when we wear those masks in long term is that we forget who we are you know yeah and i think that if you forget who you are what what chance do you really have to make it right well you don't have any chance to grow yeah I mean, Absolutely. the second you start lying about who you are, the second is, a, I mean, 
denial occurs when a human being want, doesn't want to see a part of themselves. And then as they do this thing called denial, they can no longer see it. So if you're in a professional environment, I just like, it's just, a, just an interesting contrast. If you're in a professional environment and you can't do something and you try to like hide it from people, the pain of hiding it is so great that you'll just like actually hide it from yourself. And then you won't even know that it's your growth edge. And then you won't be able to do anything about it. And then you'll wonder why you're not doing your job as well as you could. And you'll wonder why someone else is doing it better. And it's all like, it's just so much easier to just own who you are so you can own who you are. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's you giving up an awful lot of that perceived control that you think you are the public yeah. master and you can control all this stuff. I'm just kind of looking at you thinking you cut the strings and you're like, oh, I'll go where I will. And people will know I don't have strings, and then we'll have that discussion when it happens. But what people don't realize is that people, they, they like that. It intrigues them. I've seen people that are, that are not, not addicts at all that still hide behind who they authentically are, and they end up at these jobs they hate, and they end up in marriages that, that are loveless. And it's like, why can't you just be authentic and be real? I'm That, that to me, is huge. That authenticity aspect, that first, first principle you said, that had to have been probably one of the most eye-opener slash deep breath, here we go, because what if someone knows who I really am? Will they love me? Will they care about me? Will they have faith in me? And you're like, yeah, they will. And if not, <laughs> guess what? There's someone out there that will, right? I mean, yeah, this they're not the, the right principle, fit. right? Well, so I want anyone who is listening to that thinks that, you know, this can be a curse or that this is impossible, you know, Practicing rigorous authenticity was what I was told I had to do. But the problem is in today's world, people are talking about authenticity and they talk about it as an aspirational concept, an inspirational concept. They talk about the what and why. No one shows you the how. No yeah. one gives you, here's how you're authentic. Here's how you work through this stuff. And so those two other principles, that other principle, surrender the outcome. That is the key because then you can do this thing called uncomfortable work. And what I would say is, when you can do more uncomfortable work than the next person, you're going to be more successful. You're going to be more trusted. And my personal testimony is when I practiced rigorous authenticity, when I surrendered the outcome and I did uncomfortable work as a drug addict, learning to be a clean drug addict, I started to master a skill set that, that I then applied to my job. And I went from a dude at a kiosk in a mall to a manager with a $250 million P&L and 19 direct reports in my 20s with no college degree. I left that job at the height of the recession and co-founded a startup that became an Inc. 500 company. I used the principles that I learned in recovery to build the leadership framework and the culture for my employees. And we were acquired by a publicly traded company. Then I used those principles to go lead a nonprofit to help 2,000 entrepreneurs a year start or grow a business. And that's when I said, okay, I got to share these principles with the world. And I did the TED Talk that now has 2.4 million views. And what I now I go around the world and I basically coach people at companies like Google and Dell and HCA and all these other places. And all I'm sharing with them is what I learned for me in a meeting for an hour of my time and a crappy cup of coffee. That's all I'm teaching them is this process of owning who you are. Because here's the thing. I've done a lot of research as a business guy, as an entrepreneur. We used to live in a world where it actually wasn't safe to share your weaknesses. 
So when we think of a commander on the battlefield, they needed to project strength because it was called command and control leadership. And it was on the concept that there's a centralized leadership structure and people shouldn't question their orders. Same thing in the boardroom for a CEO of a publicly traded company. Well, most of us, anyone that preceded us in, in, the, in the history of the U.S. specifically, grew up in a manufacturing economy. In a manufacturing economy, the relationship between the people that spend money, the consumers, and the people that make the product is completely disintermediated by, by, by retail stores, right? You, you don't have a relationship with a basketball you buy at Walmart. You have a relationship with Walmart. And so it's a manufacturing economy. And so people can be traded like, treated like cogs. Well, in the last 25 years or 30 years, two things have happened. Number one, the internet and digitization has created globalization and has created a world that is not connected and totally connected. Mm. We are not connected to the person next to us, but we have connection everywhere. And our economy has transitioned from a services economy, from a manufacturing economy to a services and information economy. In a services and information economy, you actually want control and power to be decentralized. You want the consultant to have the power to make a decision. You want the software to solve the problem for the user without every, anyone ever doing anything. And so in a services economy, guess what? The human becomes the product. And we are all human. We all have humanity. And that is why we don't get down with generals that say they don't have weaknesses anymore because we have weaknesses. We, we want do. to connect with other people that are like us. And in a services economy, connection with humans wins. And most people are out there executing a dated business model. And what they don't realize is it's one thing to say, oh, you know what? Like, I, I kept it real in front of grandma. I talked about that one time I failed at school. And meanwhile, I'm walking in here saying, I'm a drug addict, dude. Let's talk yeah. about all my problems. And then they go, wow, I can be myself in front of this person. I want to do business with this person. I want to learn from this person. I just go around telling people how much I suck. And because I have the courage to do it, they want to work with me. Like, this is actually really freaking simple. The world has just changed and most people don't know it. It's like most people are walking around in a world before there was a website when it comes to how they think about leadership. And it's time to revolutionize the rules of leadership. Humanity wins, connection wins, your ability to be vulnerable and rigorously authentic wins. And if you can master how to surrender the outcome and do uncomfortable work, you will win. It's, it's those, it's those, it's those notions that we have bouncing around in, in our heads that if, if the, the Joneses next door know too much about our family, then we'll, we'll be looked down upon. But, but what does that really even mean, right? It's why I think so many people have a hard time getting help for, for addictions. And, and so they stay hidden for so long. It's because like, again, I think you're spot on. I think that, that the fear of judgment has become so huge that, you know, this notion of, you know, we're just pretending like we're the perfect family. There's no such thing. And we can keep saying that, but until people start feeling comfortable in their own skin, however they choose to do it, like you said, doesn't matter if you do it from a mountaintop or if you do it in a, in a room yeah. with, with 12 other guys. It doesn't matter as long as you can do your literally to your own self be true and then act on that. It's the funniest thing. And so I've taught the athletes that same thing. I'm like, look, you guys have been the world's best addicts out there. If you flip the script, you can still be a producer. You can still be, you know, a creator. You can do all of these things, but you can have purpose behind it. And that's kind of a hard thing for them to wrap their heads around is how do I create purpose out of out of like something that I, that I'm, that I have a weakness. When you, when you do this, when you start promoting and talking like I do about how addiction can be literally a superpower and people start looking at you sideways, what do you tell them? How do you, how do you, how do you show them 
to like look at it in that different light because it's such a standard issue. If you're an addict, you're a, you're a, you're a low life. You're in the you're in the hallway. You're in the alley trying to mug people. You know, you're selling babies. Like, how do you how do you do your 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 culture into like showing them what an addict really can? So the the thing that I do is the first thing I do is help them understand what I kind of just shared in a world where people yeah. are ten times less <clears throat> connected. Um, there's something happening that most people don't realize, and that is with access to information, human beings are comparison engines. And so we now have the ability to compare ourselves to everybody like us in the world. It used to just be Johnny down the street, but now we can look online and compare ourselves to everybody. So what ends up happening is we have 10 times more incentive to cover up who we are because we have 10 times more reasons to think that we suck compared to someone else. And so that's why everybody's desperate for authenticity. And so if you can learn these three principles, practice rigorous authenticity, surrender the outcome and do uncomfortable work, we've done studies, we've assessed over 3000 leaders, you can reclaim about 10 to 15 hours a week back in your day professionally, um, simply by doing three things that most people don't do, uh, because they're not being authentic. You could most people say yes, when they could say no, they hide a weakness, or they avoid a difficult conversation. That's killing. Those three things are killing companies right now. And every leader in every company is doing them. Mm. And so what I do is I kind of talk about the services economy piece. and I talk about how this stuff works together. And I say, look, the reason that people trust me is because I'm willing to own the worst thing about me. So what if the worst thing about you could be the best thing about you? Because it, it allows other people to trust you. So I first make the argument that this actually is better for you to practice these principles. It'll make you more successful. Then what I help them understand is I'll always be, I will always be naturally advantage over a normie. Me being a yeah. drug addict makes me 10 times more better at practicing these principles for two reasons. The first one is you can tell an addict to stop using until you are blue in the face, but nothing will happen until you tell them what to start instead. Most of the leaders in this world are being told that they need to become authentic and no one's telling them what to start. No one's giving them the how. Yeah. And so most leaders are floundering from yeah. government officials to corporate executives. Mm. And so the thing is, as a drug addict, I have two things that those leaders don't have. The first thing I have is I have incentive. If I don't practice these principles, I walk around with a loaded gun pointed at my head every single day. I have incentive that they don't. If they don't practice these principles, they won't get a promotion. The company won't be as successful. Consumers might not trust the company. I'll freaking die. So I have incentive. And then number two, because addiction sucks, I have millions of other fellow addicts that have to do this and I get to learn from them and practice with them. Most leaders that actually want to become an authentic leader have no one to practice with. They don't know how to do it and they don't have the incentive. So naturally, as an addict, I'm advantaged in a way that they're not. Yeah, because if they show up at a situation or, or, or place where all learning CEOs go, someone might find out that they don't know what they're doing and this company's going to be lost. And do we have faith in that guy? Oh, man, spot on. It's just ever, it's this never ending cycle. I could only understand like someone that finally breaks the chains and understands that, yeah, I'm doing this so that I can become a better, you know, CEO or, or father or mother or whatever. Once they make that leap, they're like, wow, oh, there's a lot of freedom there. I think that's, I, I think you're, you're, you're spot on. Um, my question that I have too then, being rigorously honest isn't just for me. It wasn't just letting people know that, yeah, you know, I, I, I struggled with addiction for many years and, and now I'm, I'm in recovery. I'm making these changes. Um, it was what caused my addiction too, right? It was like, I figured out yeah. the core issues of these things. 
And so I know that when I'm talking about like feelings of neglect and feelings of abandonment and, 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 and trauma, these things that used to be very much hidden and quiet when, when you let that out and you're like, yeah, the, the addiction I had, it was because of these things. Though the addiction's easy to talk about, you know, it's the stuff behind that. It's like, yeah, man, I, you know, I, I really get nervous when I start seeing or feeling people push away because I have a, you know, I've been abandoned as a kid. That's why my addiction took over. But then it's like putting it into play about like, all right, so then an investment, I have to emotionally invest in people knowing that they're going to leave or that they're going to, you're going to go. And so I'm like, I, oh, you'd be mindful of that kind of stuff. So I love the fact that the, the addiction's one part. But being completely authentic means like you also know where that stuff comes from so that you can you can kind of hone your skills into kind of, a, I guess, a toolbox of success of like, I know who I am to my own self. I'm true. And so when I start seeing people leave, it's not because it's me. It's because it's time for them to start another journey. Uh, I love that concept, man. How hard is it to wrap your head around people? this concept who don't have addictions who don't have that. They're like, they have similar feelings. Everyone has feelings. I look at my wife. She's never touched a drug or alcohol in her life yet. She's experienced loss and she's experienced feelings of, of being unloved. She's experienced all those things. But what makes me think that I'm better at it because you know, I had an addiction. It's just the way we channel this stuff. That's the beauty of, I think what you're teaching is it doesn't matter what it is being authentic and, and, and doing, you know, and being vulnerable and doing that hard stuff. It's, it's so worth it because you have no more, you have no more tie down, no more binding. Yeah. Is that how you see it? How do you help people that don't have those understand these principles? Well, I, you know, one of the things I was taught in recovery was, um, action over insight. So mm -hmm. I don't necessarily try to get them to understand them that much. I try to show them through the action. So for example, um, you know, I, t I like to talk about once I own the fact that I'm an addict, it's, it, everything else is, is supposed to be easier, but it isn't. So, um, when we had, uh, our first child, my daughter, um, I, uh, that was like two years ago and a little over two years ago. And everybody said, you know, you're not going to sleep. And I'm like, okay, cool. Um, I'm not going to sleep. And in that first month or two, my wife was like, no, you sleep. Cause you know, you're of no use to me <laughs> because yeah. she wanted to, she didn't want to bottle feed. And so I got to sleep, but I walked around my house like a resentful, reluctant tourist. I felt no connection to my wife. I felt an obligation to my daughter, but I didn't feel a connection. I mean, I don't know who she is. I mean, like she's new to me, right? Like, yeah. you know, my wife had carried it around, but like, she's not talking. I'm a dude. Like I need to interact, like talk to me. She's not smiling, nothing. So I didn't feel a connection to her. I sat there and I would take care of her and I'm like, man, this is a terrible use of my skill set. I'm a CEO of a company like and yeah. I don't, not from an arrogance perspective, just I'm really bad at this. Yeah. And I'm good at other things. And and I was really, really, really frustrated and I felt really alone. I felt really isolated. And so the voice in my head said the last thing you can do is talk about this. Because for my fellow friends or addicts that are struggling with addiction, they're like, that's, a, that's not a real problem. I got real problems. And then for everybody else, it's like, aren't you a bad father? And I remember I confided in a mentor and he's like, really? I had none of those problems. I'm like, crap. And so I go to my home group and I finally share about this struggle that I'm having. And all these dudes, and which was hard because I'm an old timer at my home group. And so like people look up to me, which I mean, I, is weird for me to say, but like... Yeah. 
one of the things I was taught was like, you got to do whatever got you here. You got to keep doing. And so I share this and all these friends of mine that are fathers come up to me afterwards and they're like, dude, I felt the same way. I'm like, well, where were you, yeah, where were you when guys? I was about yeah. to have a kid? You told me about the sleep. You didn't tell me about this stuff. Like what? <laughs> Yeah. I let I'd like five guys come up to me. All that said, I wasn't going to sleep. They're like, yeah, dude, I, I, I didn't feel connected to anyone either. I'm like, well, you didn't tell me about that. And in that moment, you know, I've had so many of those moments, like when I was CEO of my company and, and, and I didn't know what to do. And, and I felt like a CEO should never tell his people that you don't know what to do. But I told my people, I don't know what to do. And then they helped me. Like I have had hundreds, if not thousands of moments where I've had to practice rigorous authenticity, where I wasn't disclosing the fact that I was an addict. I was disclosing something that makes me human. Yeah. And yep. it's some it's it's a daily daily grind but like dude when my book came out we were doing content on social media. I mean, I don't think I'll ever be fully authentic. I think it being inauthentic is its own addiction because we were doing this content on social media my wife was filming and we're I'm in the, I'm like really hit my stride. I'm ranting on something and she stops me and she's like let's stop. I'm like what? And she's like you're not being authentic. I'm like what are you talking about? I'm uh, Mr. Authenticity. Uh, I wrote a book called Great Leaders Live Like Drug Addicts, man. I love it. And she yeah. and she's like, I've seen you after the meeting, one-on-one -on -one with an addict on the steps of the church. And the way that you talk to that person is very different than the way you're talking right now. It sounds like you're performing for everybody. Mm -hmm. And as soon as she said that, I was like, oh my God, she's right. I am thinking, I'm trying to, I'm trying to pretend to be who I think I'm supposed to be as opposed to actually who I am. And so I was like more animated. I was like saying things that I was trying to include everybody instead of just talking to the one person. And so even when I was talking about rigorous authenticity, as someone that works on this every day, I found myself not even knowing it, I was being inauthentic. Yeah. So I it's think a daily if you can struggle. do that too, then that criticism that comes with everything um, doesn't land as heavy as it would if you are being like like something that you're not. You're wearing those masks. People get when people criticize people that are wearing masks. You kind of know when people criticize when you're authentic and you have all you have everything to, to show. It's like a uh, person probably just doesn't understand or you know yeah. wh whatever. We make up we make up reality quotes instead of like how dare him and make us get mad. So I love the fact that, that was kind of where it went. Did you find that being a little bit of the case though too? Like when when you did get criticism, it was like yeah. I've dealt with harder things, right? You know, for certain things, yes. Like, what? here's what I'll say. Criticism for me is always hard to hear. But the internal reaction that I have to it is something that I have 10,000 hours of practice reacting differently. Because the reaction is I want to pretend that I that I'm I want to defend myself and I want to pretend that I'm all good and I want to close that criticism out because it's threatening. But I have I have 18 years of practice of overriding that because every time I've ever acted in arrogance, I've always regretted it. And right. every time I've ever acted in humility and said, you know what, let me look at my part in this, um, I've always a reconnected with a person that I may have hurt and learned something and grown because of it. And so now, like, that's one thing I love about my wife. She's a super authentic person, like so much so that most people don't like her because <laughs> she's yeah. too authentic. I um, have one of those myself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and, and the thing is, is that, um, when she is authentic, 
she she's being her true self but like if i call her out on something respectfully like she'll own it immediately like she doesn't defend and same thing with me and as a result we grow together like we do this thing called life together and i don't know i can't think of a whole lot of moments where we've ever like given each other constructive criticism where the person just got super defensive yeah. and that's just like that's a magical relationship to be in because you can grow so much and so like imagine if everybody was like that imagine if you never had to worry about someone's ego again and everybody could just help each other grow like that's what I, I talk to a lot of companies that's literally what's happening at companies you have all these people that are hiding themselves and not helping each other grow it's all this yeah. trap potential that's just wasted because people are trying to take a line that's going down on powerpoint and turn it up or like they're trying to make it Susie's fault or they're trying to like whatever. And they could just be saying, yeah, you know what? I messed up. You're right. And that's one thing that recovery gave me was a capacity to do that. But that doesn't mean that every single time I don't I, like I want to defend myself. Yes. But yeah. I've just learned to overpower that. Yeah. And and thank heavens uh, we were married to cooler heads because there's been so many times where like I write dissertations on Facebook responses and I'm like, well, that was dumb, and I delete it before I send it because I'm like, it feels good to get it out, but I'm like, I don't need to send that and to add to yeah. it. But yeah. it, you're right, man. It, it's it's again, it, it's knowing kind of where you stand in those situations, and one of the hardest things that I ever had to learn was to be okay with not feeling okay, and to just kind of like say, you know what, that that flipped hurt, that sucked. Um, because being vulnerable like that, especially us guys, the alpha males, you know, yeah, the last totally. thing we want to do is show weakness because weakness equals death. Um, but not necessarily because it shows a lot of emotional intelligence, which I think is kind of a super important thing these days that, uh, you know, how do you teach it? How do you get, you know, these, these new and up and comers, these kids to, to, to learn emotional intelligence because there's masculinity, there's feminism, there's all kinds of stuff that like, you know, for generations, years, since we crawled out of a cave, we've been taught that you suppress it, you hide from it. And the moment you show weakness, you get consumed. And it's hard to break those old habits, isn't it? It, I mean, I think they're ingrained. So yeah. it's, they, for me, they are as ingrained, and this is why this stuff is so cool. They are as ingrained as my desire to use something to get high. And so it's the practice of overcoming that that is the real magic. And it's that driving force that means that I got to stay on my game. You know, I, I, I got I to stay good at that. It's interesting, you know, the masculinity and, and all that kind of stuff. Like so much of that, originates from like physical survival and when you think about like where we are today as a society um most people not everybody but aren't as concerned with you know a tiger in a bush attacking them um and what people are actually looking for are real leaders like real leaders not just people that are in positions of power and to me you know a real leader is someone who's willing to lead themselves and I think most of our leaders are so consumed with their followers and leading other people that they've forgotten how to lead themselves. And if you were pretending that you're perfect, you're not leading yourself because that just isn't true. Nobody has that power. Yeah. So I love the fact that, 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 that that's how you, you view it. And it's something that I've done. I've tried desperately to get the athletes who, um, you know, are on this journey of recovery to, to believe in uh, that fear they have in the back of their head. If, if I show vulnerability, it's game over. I think we'll have a lot of work on our hands teaching people that's not the case, but they'll have to they'll have to at least one time test that theory. Do you remember the first time you, you seriously tested that theory? You're like, I know these things. I'm gonna put it into play, even though I 
my head saying, don't do it. You're going to screw up. You're going to, you're going to lose this, whatever it was. Remember the first time you, you practiced those principles and had a return on emotional investment? You know, I don't actually, I remember the first time I practiced it. I actually don't know if I got a return on emotional investment, but it was, it's still something I'm grateful for. It was when I was in rehab um, and I had heard that some of my friends that were there um, that I'd made in rehab were sneaking out at night and getting drunk and that they had brought some stuff, some drugs and alcohol back to their room. And I was freaking out because I wanted to stay clean, but I also of course wanted what they had and I didn't like having it in that, in the environment. And so I go to the therapist and, um, and I, and like, I had to challenge this whole masculine thing, uh, childhood thing of like, you don't, don't be a rat. Yeah. Don't tattletale, right? Like that real man doesn't do that. And meanwhile, like I'm fearful for my ability to stay clean. And and so I go to this therapist and I'm like, there's somebody in the in the in the quad that um that has stuff in their room. And I keep talking about it and she keeps asking me questions about this quote unquote somebody, and this is actually really funny. And then she goes, So when did you get the stuff? She thought I kept I was talking about myself, like in the third <laughs> like I'm somebody. <laughs> And so I start crying because I'm yeah. so frustrated because I just took this huge risk yeah. to like try to advocate for my recovery that violated the rules of the tribe in my mind. Um, and then I wasn't even believed for a period of time. But as I started talking about it more, she finally got it. Yeah. And then the guy got kicked out. And then uh, the addicts called an, uh, an addict only meeting and said, we got to know who the rat is, who, who ratted out so-and-so. And finally I go, I did because I want to stay clean. And I felt so alone. And then a second later, there was this guy that everybody respected. that was like a big TV producer or whatever. And he goes, I'm glad he did because I'm taking my recovery seriously too. And a bunch of other people said that stuff. And, and I guess maybe I did get a little bit of a return investment in the sense that like they valued what I did. That didn't stop some new guy afterwards from coming up aside uh, of me and telling me about his knife in his room and how he was going to cut me. Yeah. But luckily that didn't happen. And yeah. uh, I don't know if he actually had a knife or not. But like, I remember that was like, that was the, my first act of leadership because leadership is a willingness to take an unpopular stance. And more often than not, when you, when you practice leadership, there are people that need to be led by you. And so I took an unpopular stance and there were other people that believed it. So I guess I did get a return on emotional investment, but it felt, it felt really crappy. I mean, I, I've, I've been in situations like that where I've had a, a coworker of mine who I just absolutely adored and loved, taught me how to be a counselor. And I found him using, and I'm mm. like, I'm like, dude, if you, if I ever catch you again, I gave him that one. Right. I'm like, come on, man, I'm here. I'll help you. If I ever catch it again, I have to turn you in. And obviously that wasn't enough because he did it again. And I, man, I remember that first time I had to go to like my boss who I admired and, and, and just really had the world admiration for and, you know, turn my best friend in and man, it didn't go good until years later when the whole cycle come around to him. Those times, man, there's times when you don't get that return either. Like you're right. There's times you don't, yeah. but it's again, it's you going to stand up for, for you. You're going to be honest. I mean, I've been a therapist in that situation too, where people come to me and they're like, don't tell anybody that I, that I said this, but, and I'm like, should stand up in group and call them out. And we practice a little bit different. There's treatment centers do all different things. Sometimes they need to leave. Other times it's a great learning opportunity, but that's where it all begins is you 
standing up and being authentic. I mean, I, I love it. I could talk to you for hours, brothers. These hours go by fast. How do the listeners, the athletes, the people who find this podcast, how do they find you? Because I think you're, I think it's a great book. I'm going to, I'm going to snag me up a copy ever since Dr. Paul told me about it. I've wanted to talk to you because not a lot of people have that mindset and that's, that's what I like to teach out here. So what's the best way to, 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 to connect with you, social media, book wise, what do you say? Thanks, dude. Um, so if you want to check out the book, Great Leaders of Like Drug Addicts, just go to greatleaderbook.com, greatleaderbook.com, and it'll have a link to my TED Talk too there. And um, and I'll, and you can also get like a 30 minute free um, audio intro, like where I'm narrating. So if you don't like the sound of my voice, I would not get the intro. But <laughs> if you do want to, if you want to hear the third, first 30 minutes for free, you can get that. And then if you just like want to connect with me, just go to michaelbrodyweight.com. Um, you can even Google Michael Brody Waite, B-R-O-D-Y-W-A-I-T-E. Um, I got my butt kicked for having such a weird last name for like the first 25 years of my life, but it's, I'm nice. the only Brody Waite in the world. So SEO treats me really well. So it yeah, paid off. Go. So just Google Michael Brody hyphen Waite and you'll find um, all kinds of stuff on me. That's awesome, man. Listeners, check it out. Like I said, this is TED Talk enough just to whet your appetite. We listened to it a couple of times. It's, it's amazing. And I love the fact that you're you're helping recognize that addiction doesn't have to be a death sentence. In fact, it can be a catalyst for greater things if you can see it in the light that it's intended. I want to thank Radio Ronin, the Radio Ronin Network, for having Addict Athlete be part of the Radio Ronin family. Thanks so much. And uh, athletes, until next time, go turn that mess into a message. Listeners, friends, and family, Have you ever felt like you had more in the tank? Maybe you have a very unique and special gift to be able to connect with people in the recovery world. If so, I highly recommend jumping on addict2athlete.org underneath the resources page and check out our certified recovery coach training program. This is a 40-hour training course that will help you become a certified recovery coach. You can open your own chapter of Team Addict to Athlete and begin that healing process in your own community, or you can use its teachings to start your own career as a recovery coach. Our certified class goes over scope of practice, ethics, how to coach individuals in recovery, how to assist them on their journey, and how to move them from addict to athlete. It's a very in-depth training program with a lot of hands-on material and instant access to Coach Blue, Athletic Director Marissa, Coach Jensen, and many, many more. We've already had dozens of individuals move from athlete to coach and begin their own path to assist their communities in the healing process. Again, jump on addict2athlete.org underneath the resources page or email marissa at addict2athlete.org directly and she will send you the content you'll need in order to get more understanding, more information, and on the path to become an Addict to Athlete Certified Recovery Coach.